Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures on the history of yoga. Let's continue with the next lecture. Om Arihantam Namo Karaha. Jainism. Jainism is a very, very, very old religion with its interesting relationship with yoga. Like Buddhism, Jainism originated in Northeast India, around the area of modern-day Varanasi. And like Buddhism, Jainism was founded by human beings for whom we have historical record. Jainism, however, predates Buddhism by several hundred years, and we know that the Buddhists often would recruit people from Jainism to join their faith. In Jainism, there are 24 remarkable teachers whose stories and lives become paradigmatic for the Jains that follow. And the most recent of those living masters was called Mahavira, who lived during the lifetime of the Buddha, which is some 500 years before the Common Era. And we know that he and his forebears taught a very particular way of viewing the world, a way of viewing the world that privileges and honors each and every life force named Jiva in Jainism, and that this worldview states that Jivas have always been here, they will always be here, and no jiva is the same as any other jiva. And each jiva, through the course of life after life after life, in this realm of unending birth, death, and rebirth, through the commitment to various activities known as karma, has a choice to make. And either the karmas get piled on thicker and deeper, or if the spiritual impulse has taken command, the jhana will enter a pathway of purification through which the karmas become released. And that path of purification became adopted by Patanjali as the gateway, the very first anga of Patanjali's Ashtanga yoga system. For the Jains, nonviolence, truthfulness, not stealing, sexual restraint, and non-possession become the keystone for spiritual freedom. 
Mahavira gathered hundreds of thousands who followed his teachings in regard to the performance of spiritual life. And his successor philosophically, a man called Umasvati, who lived some 800 years after Mahavira lived, was very explicit in saying that the word yoga is really about how karma gets together with the soul and obstructs the energy, consciousness, and bliss of the soul. It was very explicit that the process of spiritual life must be referred to as moving toward a yoga, moving toward disjointing that karma from the soul. So yoga was not a positive term within the first several centuries of the practice and thought that characterized the Jaina tradition. Patanjali contributed to a change in languaging. And Patanjali, who had gained full popularity by the fourth or fifth century, created through his articulation of yoga as spiritual discipline, created something that rippled off into the Hindu Puranas, that was embraced with the birth of Yogacara Buddhism during that period as well, where there was a, a positive action, positive smile placed upon yoga as a way to characterize the meditative process. And in the sixth century, a yogi, Jaina, known as Haribhadra Virahanka, took that word yoga and spiritualized it for the Jainas. So starting from the sixth century forward, yoga has a positive connotation within Jainism, and yoga refers explicitly to that very detailed spiritual path already in place within Jainism, referred to as the 14 guna stanas. And the 14-fold guna stana, which means stages of quality, can be summarized as follows. At some point, a moment of awakening may take place. And in Jainism, this moment of awakening is where for a period usually of about 48 minutes, you enter spontaneously into a place of equanimity, samyag dershti, an equalized way of seeing. And it's beautiful. It places you into a 48-minute experience of freedom, where you feel that all of your karmas have just dissolved. And that state is the fourth state because some people, once they experience it, think, oh, that was nice, but they don't really do anything about it. 
Some people completely forget about it and they descend to the second level. And unfortunately, many people never rise to that state and they are forever, at least in this birth, within the first rung of the spiritual path and that's a state of ignorance. Some people inspired by that moment of, or that extended experience and immersion for 48 minutes into bliss, they say, how can I recover that, that blessed, blessed feeling? And they turn to the exemplars, they turn to the Tritankaras, they turn to those teachers, and they say, I will commit myself to the vows. I will commit myself to nonviolence, truthfulness, not stealing, sexual propriety for lay people, faithfulness within marriage, and to minimalization of my possessions. And then in states six, seven, eight, nine, ten, they get better and better and better and better. They move from the physical realm of perfecting those vows into the subtle realm, the psychological realm of uncovering and leaving behind those impulses that cause one to acquire, that cause one to do violence, to cause one, that cause one to become insincere or dishonest. And they may rise to the 11th level where all of a sudden they get so good at it that they develop a pride that then subtly gives them permission to stray and they'll fall down and they'll just go all the way back down to a lower state, even the lowest state. But if they're able to skip over that 11th level into the 12th level, they'll be free of attachment and enter the 13th state, which is a condition where everything they do is blessed and beautiful and without guile or regret, so that when they enter into that final experience, passing beyond this body, rather than taking another body, they carry that body into the realm called the Siddhaloka, the realm of freedom, populated by unknown numbers of blessed souls who dwell forever on their own mountain peak, gazing down with their energy and their consciousness and their bliss from that place of perfect, abiding, eternal happiness and awareness. Okay, so that's the large frame narrative of Jainism. And when Haribhadra Virahanka in the sixth century saw the need to think about that whole experience in terms of yoga. He developed a five-fold yoga. He knew about Patanjali and he said, I think I can make this a little bit more simple. So he re-articulated the spiritual path, the yoga path, as beginning with self-reflection, beginning with adhyatma, beginning with a recognition of the reality of the jiva, of the soul, and a reality of karma. The script 
pushed by karma that causes the human person to do what human people do, which is follow desire, recoil from displeasure, to appropriate a sense of ego, to pile on all of those karmas that obscure our knowledge, that obscure our insight, karmas that push us into that realm of feeling pleasure and displeasure, karmas that cause delusion, karmas that hinder and obscure our true power, and karmas that correlate with our age, karmas that correlate with the body that we possess, karmas that have brought us into our particular family birth. And by reflecting on those karmas and sorting out those karmas, gradually through that practice of self-reflection, the narrative begins to make sense. Understanding can come of why this family does this. Why, maybe not from this life, but from past lives, why this particular obstruction seems so intransigent, and then in recovering that past life narrative, you can begin to forgive yourself and begin to let that thing go. Okay, adhyatma, the self-reflection, self-reflection toward that purified consciousness and a truth-telling of untangling the knots of karma. A Jain monk or a Jain nun is said to be on the path of the near grunta, of undoing those various and sundry and myriad knots that make the body what it is, that cage the mind, in habits that can be identified and, most importantly, unraveled. And from there, one works with cultivation, bhavana, manifesting the good qualities that arise from being increasingly careful about not causing harm increasingly careful in one's observance of nonviolence, and then one moves into states of meditation. And from those states of meditation, and within those states of meditation, moving into that blessed equanimity, the samatha, the upeksha, equanimity, no longer being swayed, by pleasure or repulsed by displeasure. And with this comes the fifth and final stage of yoga, articulated by Haribhadra Virahanka, is vritti samkshaya, a way of saying chitta vritti naroda, going into that place of calm, uninfluenced by karma, going into that place of highest peace. A couple of centuries go by, and another 
great scholar who similarly had converted from Brahmanism. So he was very, very well educated. He knew all of the six darshanas. He knew all of the ways of ritual, of logic, of physical description. He knew the ways of Sankhya, Vedanta, and yoga. And he was just striding around with his big belly, girded with a thread of gold, and boasting that anybody that can tell me anything that I don't already know, I will become that person's disciple. And there was a Jain nun reciting the Namakar Mantra, and I gave the very first piece of it, giving honor to the Arahants, giving honor to the 24 Tirthankaras who had conquered karma and risen to freedom in the Siddhaloka. And he said, what are you talking about? And he became her disciple and the disciple of her teacher. And then he took all of his knowledge that he had come into this path with from the Hindu tradition, and he sent his nephews out to learn from the Buddhists about all of the teachings of Buddhism. And then he recrafted Jainism and created a Jain meditation for the times. Now, he was in the 8th century. He was active and learned during the period of the ascendancy of Tantra. And Tantra had evoked mantra. Tantra had developed rituals that had violated propriety in the name of purification. And he said, this is not a good idea. Nothing good comes of any form of destruction. And yet he was impressed by the amazing popularity of the 64 yogini system. And people throughout India, and the archaeological sites are still there, people throughout India would go to these tantric sites where 64 yogini images would be graced with the presence of women, live human women dressed up as those yoginis. And people would pay to spend time with those women. It was a rather infamous practice that was supposed to bring total freedom. But what he said was that let's take the quintessence of that practice and purify it. So rather than the worship of 64 goddesses, he said, let's do the square root of that. Let's, like Patanjali, develop an eightfold path of worship, and we'll name each of those stages for a goddess. So he transformed Patanjali, combined it with Tantra, and created this new path within Jainism of venerating the feminine in order to reach a state of purification. And he said that first stage of Patanjali is, we know, the path of Jainism. He called that stage Mitra. He says, let us become friendly, friendly to the world by honoring all that is symbolized by this goddess called Mitra, 
who will make us gentle and nonviolent within the world. And then he looked at the second path of Patanjali, which are the niyamas, the positive qualities to be cultivated. And he said, let's make them Tara, borrowing in the name of a revered Buddhist goddess, and said, let us make Tara be our protector. Then he looked at Patanjali's third limb, which is asana. And he said, through asana, we become strong. Jains are rather renowned for their adeptness at asana. And he titled that asana limb as Bala, the goddess of bodily strength. And then he examined pranayama. And we know from Patanjali that you do that pranayama and you hold that exhaled breath, that the light from within will shine without. And we know from the vibhutis, the powers of yoga, that when you're adept at pranayama, that you do radiate. And he said, let's name that aspect of yoga, and we love pranayama. Jains, again, are adepts at pranayama. Let's name that for the goddess Dipra, the shining quality that we manifest within the world. And then the next, the fifth stage of yoga is pratyahara, where you gather all of the senses in, like the tortoise gathering its head, gathering its limbs into the shell. You become very, very, very steady, ready for meditation. And he said, ah, we'll call this with the goddess name stira, a beautiful way to be stable, stop, stable, stira within the word, within the world. And then he looked at Dharana and he said, people who have the capacity to concentrate, they're beautiful people. Like this goddess we will invoke, Kanta. He named meditation through which one becomes radiant after the goddess Prabha, and the light shining forward into the world. And then for that level of freedom called samadhi in yoga, he said, this is where we get a glimpse of what it's like to be in the Siddha Loka. This samadhi state is the state of the highest. This I will call para, echoing the highest tantra and enabling Jainism to become a conversation partner with the tantrikas without surrendering their philosophical commitment to the integrity and possible freedom of the individual through strict and abiding adherence to that all-important vow of ahimsa, the vow of nonviolence. Om Namaha Jinnah.
Bhagavantam Namokara Jainism in Jain Yoga remained dynamic and continues to be dynamic with the unfolding of history. In the 8th century, Haribhadra Yakaniputra had put forward a critique of Tantra and had attempted to reinterpret Jainism, reconfigure Tantra, and rethink Patanjali's yoga to develop a system that in some ways blended all three without surrendering the core Jain philosophical commitment to nonviolence. A couple of centuries later, in a slightly different part of India, with a different doctrinal affiliation, another great scholar called Shubhachandra rethought that relationship with Tantra. And rather than ignoring its undeniable power and allure, he recrafted Jainism and created a new practice within Jainism that in fact put the mantra, the yantra, the colors, and so on of Tantra practice in service of Jainism. Again, without surrendering the Jain commitment to nonviolence, and very much in the spirit of what Jainism refers to as anekantavada, that is, an acknowledgement. There is never any one view that is perfect for all people at the same time. Jainism argues doggedly for a perspective of pluralism. Because Jainism states that every soul is distinct, every soul is different from every other soul, that no one has created these souls, that they've been here forever, nothing can ever destroy these souls, they will be here forever. Jainism is the first to say, live and let live. If a Buddhist wants to be a Buddhist, let the Buddhist be a Buddhist. If the Vedantin wants to follow Vedanta, let the Vedantin be a Vedantin. A Jain will say, but I still think that my position is right, but they're going to make space for others. And this has stood through the centuries very well for individual Jains, and their social location really from very, very early times has been that of the merchant class. Not all merchants are Jains, but most Jains are merchants. And this was not unrelated to their religious commitment, and the Jains were very thoughtful on how to apply that tantric principle of nonviolence to their livelihood. And what they discovered was that if 
they engage in the buying and selling and trading of goods, that they were a little bit removed from the harm that is committed in the production of many goods. And they also had, through their philosophy, discovered a hierarchy of harms. And they said, we must be vegetarian because in order to eat flesh foods, you have to take the life of a being that is moving and breathing. And yes, there is life in plants, but they don't move around. So we think that this is a, a lesser harm. And they committed themselves through their vegetarianism to be involved with food production, to be involved with construction, to be involved eventually in the diamond business, to be involved with publishing, to be involved with medicine, which does good within the world, and to be involved even within finance. And even when Hindus and Sikhs were severely persecuted during times of Mughal rule in medieval India, the Jains were okay because they helped support the finance needs of various Mughal rulers. So Jainism in history, very fascinating, very dynamic. And in the 10th century, a member of what is called the Degumbra branch of Jainism looked for a second time at Tantra. Now let me explain a little bit about the Degumbra branch. Now this color, this color red, is associated with Degumbra monks before they take their final vows. It is said that many, many years ago, countless years ago, that the very first renouncer who succeeded in achieving liberation had as part of the commitment to the vow of no possessions, had given up every single possession, including every, every single item of clothing. And that before Jains of the Degumbra branch take that vow to become sky-clad, Umbra is clothing, dig is the sky. So they come clad with only the sky. Before they take that final vow, they will, but will wear red. And that Shubhachandra, a member of this denomination, which is generally associated since 2,300 years ago with southern India, and now Digambaras can be found in various parts of India, that he had in reading and learning and probably was also a convert from, from the Brahmanical traditions, was well familiar with tantric literature. He said, there's something that we can take from this literature, we can make it our own, and we can all be elevated by its wisdom. So he embraced the idea of the mandala. And what tantrikas do is they conceptualize the world through configurations of geometry. 
They're very attentive, and this propensity can also be found as early as the Upanishads, but they tend to think that it's very important to know one's orientation in space. For instance, this direction for me right now is the direction north. This is the auspicious direction to face when engaged in meditation. To my right, of course, is the east, another auspicious direction for meditation. It signals the beginning of the day and the dawning of light. Behind me is the south, associated with the fullness of noon and all the activities of the day. To my left is the west. And every mandala will orient according to those four directions and depict a gate from the north, a gate from the east, a gate from the south, and a gate from the west, in placing the meditating figure right in the center. And by being in the center, there's also an implicit invocation of that which is below, invocation of the earth, of in Jainism, the god Buya, and there's an invocation of that which is above, an invocation of the sky, an invocation of swa. There's also attentiveness to color within Tantra. We had seen in our studies of Buddhism the lifting up of blue, the lifting up of yellow, the lifting up of red, the lifting up of white, and in later Buddhism, an association of those colors with Buddhas of each of those four directions. And we also see the invocation of mantra, rum, lum, vam, yam, um, om. Those become important in recitation, they become important in creating that mandala, that space through which one is able to enhance purity, through which one is able to ascend from the lower realm into a higher realm. Okay, those are some of the aspects of Tantra that require a great deal of attention and care. And what Shubhadra, Shubhachandra, whose name means the purified light of the moon. Shubha is purified, Chandra is moon, and connoting the milky white light of the moon. What he realized was that there's nothing violative about invoking those mantras. There's nothing violative or difficult or troubling about invoking color. He realized there's nothing that troubles one by thinking geometrically. So he took the teachings, but he changed them. In the Hindu texts and in the Buddhist texts, it's always earth, water, fire, air, and space. And what he did 
was change that order. And he changed the order to earth, and then he invoked fire, and then invoked breath, and then invoked water, and then invoked space. Is a narrative within the classic text known as the Gyanarnava that sets a template for Jain meditation. This template was later taken up, another century later, by a Svetambara scholar saint who had converted from Hinduism to Jainism, who was present at the court of the king who himself had converted from Shaivism to Jainism, Vatsupala. And this great sage saint, Hemachandra, wrote a work called the Yoga Shastra that shows the full marriage of Jainism, Ashtanga Yoga, and Tantra. In chapter after chapter, he describes asana. He, in fact, gives the earliest record for non-Padma asana postures. He also gives in detail, chapter after chapter, on how to do very complicated pranayams. He invites in some of the Hinduism of Ayurveda about how to live a long life through proper diet, and also how to watch for the prognostications, the signs of impending death. And then, borrowing from Shubhachandra, he describes in great detail meditations that can be raudra, meditations that can lead you into the realm of the vile. And then he describes shukla meditations, meditations that lead the jain practitioner into states of increased and increasing purity. This manual, the Yoga Shastra, remains the go-to text for Jains, as it has been so since the 12th century. And as we look at this meditation, and we go through the steps of this meditation, we're entering into a history of Jain Yoga that continues right up to the present. So it begins as follows. The advice is given to take stock of all of your karmas. Remember, karmas are real. The narrative is important, and you must understand how all of those configurations of obstruction play out in this life and why they've been put there within this life and reach back and give a little narrative about past life. And know that, and know that very, very well. And visualize that in terms of the eight petals of a lotus. Okay. Four of them associate it with impurity and klesha, and four of them simply the stuff of the present moment of your body and your family and your lifespan and your awareness. Four of them obstructing your knowledge, obstructing 
your ability to think clearly, obstructing your ability to shine and radiate, obstructing your innate goodness, and place all of your knowledge of those karmas visually within these petals of a lotus, rising up from the dirt. Invoke all that you know of the earth in its golden, tawny, brownish color, and inscribe each of those earthly petals with your narrative, with that karma that obstructs. And then invite in the purifying fires of tapas. And this tapas consists of the good work that you've done for all of those years, following nonviolence, truthfulness, not stealing, fidelity in marriage, and minimization of all the stuff that you own, all of the stuff to which you've been too, too attached mentally. And you let it burn. You let it burn. You let it burn. And you let it light up that eight-petaled lotus. And you visualize yourself as floating in the center of those burning petals, in the center of a conflagration. And as it's burning, you feel the heat of that purifying power, and you begin to breathe. You begin to take volume, begin to take the wind in very, very quickly. And you do 30 rounds of Bastrika, 30 rounds of Kapalabhati. You perform pranayama and you link your inner wind with the outer wind. And this wind, it stirs up the rain clouds. And you invoke that great Vedic deity of Indra, the god who throws the thunderbolt into those monsoon rain clouds. And the rains begin, and the rains pour down, and they drench your perfect body. They purify it of all of the ash of those residual karmas. And the rains die away. You've elevated it into space. And when you open your eyes, you come face to face with your best self. Your karmas are diminished without remainder. You see yourself vibrating with immeasurable beauty. You reach an unparalleled auspicious bliss. 
You earn the name noble. You meditate on that self as if you are meditating on the glistening whiteness of the full moon. You experience that moment of blessed omniscience. You're seated on that golden mountain peak in the Siddha Loka of perfect freedom, free from all sensory outflows. And this meditation makes you similar to that jinna who has crossed the great water to the other shore. Om Namaha Parshvanat Om Namo Mahavira Shanti 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 Acharya Namaha Om Yogi Namokara Om Sadhu Namokara Jainism reveres the teachers of the past and honors and worships the teachers of the present. Professor John Court has translated some of these honorings and beautiful poetry from the medieval period up to the present that lift up the ideal of the Jain yogi. The yogi is firm in practice. His body is naked. His two arms hang down. The yogi stands staring at the tip of his nose. The master sees that, it is, that his outer mind is only dirt and so remains within. The master stands firm to defeat sense objects and passions and to break the, bond, the bonds of karma. He lives outdoors on hills and in the forest. He considers the mountain cave as a palace. The slab of rock practices equanimity like him. He uses the moon as his lamp. Deer are his friends. His food is made of asceticism. Knowledge is his pure water. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. When I first learned of Jainism some many years ago, the extremes observed by these yogis were a little bit off-putting. And in conversation with Professor Jaini at UC Berkeley, he advised, don't make a judgment until you take darshan. In other words, in order to decide if this is 
folly or wisdom, might it not be better to go directly to the source? And because the great teachers of this faith generally refuse to engage any artificial means of travel, including airplanes, it's quite a necessity to travel to India to be in the company of those who by Jains are called saints. So starting in 1989, I began to visit every few years and now every year with leaders of this remarkable form of yoga and have received the blessings of, of knowledge as well as encouragement to think about spirituality and to think about yoga with fresh spectacles through this encounter with Jainism. is one of India's most ancient traditions. It has much to offer. Fortunately, there are now many new avenues for learning about Jainism, but some years ago in 1989, it was not easy to find out about the practice of yoga within Jainism. But already in the 1980s, a system, a modern system had been put in place by a great saint called Acharya Mahapragna, who was born in 1920 and passed away in the year 2010 at the age of 90. And I had the good fortune of meeting him in 1989 and times since that time and learned about his very modern, but in many ways very traditional Jain practice of taking from culture and in the case of this century, learning from modern science and incorporating both scientific perspectives as well as practices from diverse traditions, building on what had already been put forward through the creative work of Hemachandra, Shubhachandra, and others some centuries prior. He developed a system which is called Preksha Dhyan. And Preksha means something that's right in front of the eyes. And Dhyan is the Sanskrit word for meditating. And back in 1989, I had the good fortune of a one-on-one -on -one session in this very modern, very Jain form of yoga. And it includes of course, breathing exercises. It includes some practice of asana, including the seated pose, as well as a posture known as kayot sarga, simply standing, as we heard in the hymn earlier, with hands by the sides and standing for as long as 48 minutes, with the notion that during those 48 minutes, by abstaining from movement, no karmas enter or occlude your living space. And that practice is rather remarkable and a little bit like Shavasana or Shivasana in Hatha Yoga, it can be very difficult 
to just stand or to just even lie down without moving. And the electromagnetic energies within the body may become agitated, and blissfully, thankfully, quite often, they can become quite still. So those two aspects of Jainism, part of the tradition since the beginning, are certainly incorporated into Preksha Yoga. And with the breathing, there are many complex forms of pranayama employed within Preksha Dhyam, including alternate nostril breathing, including the rapid style of breathing, including diaphragmatic breathing, and making certain that all energization possible takes place through full and complete inhale and full and complete emptying through the exhale. The hold can be rather dramatic in the style of classical Patanjali yoga, and this amalgam of practice culminates to a certain degree in this particular system with visualization of energy centers within the body. And as with the practices of Tantra, there are color visualizations associated with each of the different chakras in Prekshadhyam. However, these do not correlate to the traditional tantric system, but in fact are based on color research that was done in California in the 1970s. So in this progression of going through from, from um, the power to the heart, to the throat, to the third eye, to the penumbra of consciousness, or I should say the umbrella of consciousness that adorns the human body just as the hoods of the cobra snake adorn and signify the energetic body and protect the physical body of Lord Parshvanath, so also within Prekshityan, one is invited to feel at the core of the body an ascent from the color green, visualizing as best possible the placement of green as the earth-like foundation upon which the world is built, then visualizing blue, visualizing water, the purification of the flow, perhaps associated with the heart, red, the robustness associated with speaking forth, the chakra, which is called akendra, the energy center of the throat, rising to the color yellow, perhaps in a certain way evoking the rising sun, evoking the central, the third eye, and then white. White, like the color of the full moon, is the color of purification. Many jains, and particularly and specifically the jains of the Svetambara, or the white-clad group, will wear white to signal to the world their commitment toward purity. And this color white is used 
in a sense, to allow a purification of all of the energetic system through this process of progressive yoga. In visiting many times to Jain Vishva Bharati, which is a 100-acre campus dedicated to the study and practice of Jain yoga in the western state of Rajasthan, one encounters hundreds of young people who are considering entering monastic order. One encounters dozens of monastics who are living day by day according to the principles and precepts of traditional Jainism, as well as immersing themselves daily in this very updated version called Preksha Dhyan. So this, in a sense, is a gift to the world. And now Jain Samanis, who are generally young women who have not yet taken their final sadvi vow, and as such are allowed to travel, have open centers in Texas and in Florida and in London, where they give counsel, they give advice, and they hold training sessions on how to stabilize the mind through this very particular and very modern Jain yoga meditation system. Another encounter of modern Jain yoga that I would like to share is with another Acharya, another great teacher called Acharya Shiv Muni, still living, very vital, and one day we went on retreat in the middle of a bustling neighborhood within the northern reaches of Delhi in India. And we spent the entire day participating in sitting for a very long period, watching the breath, standing and allowing the karmas to dispel, to get a sense of what it means to have that vertical experience of standing meditation. And we also practiced, under his expert guidance, two mantras in sequence with the following guidance. The first, familiar to many from the Upanishads, is so hum. So hum, so hum, so hum, so hum, so hum. And the notion with the recitation of this particular mantra is that aham, I, sa, saha, I am actually not other than the jinna. I am not other than the Siddha. My true self has always been and will always remain free. So hum, very encouraging. But then the other shoe falls. And the reality is we all carry with us bundles, packets of knots of karma 
And the way of this particular practice taught by Acharya Shiv Muni is that you need to question. You need to come up with an inventory. You need to make a list of who you think you are. And then chant the mantra, ko-hum, 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 ko-hum. Who am I? And bring the interrogative, am I? the person that owns this brand of automobile? Am I the person that will only shop at a particular supermarket or bodega? Am I the person that holds this particular work? Am I the person who is a member of this particular family? And by placing everything into the interrogative on top of reminding oneself of one's true best nature, there's a dialogue created that allows that script, that script that requires that we come to a place of truthfulness with our karma, that makes one ripe for an experience of letting go, of letting go, of letting go. And then a third manifestation of modern Jain yoga can be found east of Delhi. And there's a very remarkable woman called Sri Pujya Ganani Sri Ganmati Mataji. She goes by Mataji who has spent more than 60 years in study, learning about Jain psychology and cosmology. In Indian thought, what is inside is outside, what is outside is inside. And what she has done is create a vast complex of temples that illustrate what is possible cosmographically and psychologically. Now, Jain psychology states that in the lower reaches of our body, we carry hell. And hell has seven domains. And when we experience intestinal distress, and I think most people will attest to this, quite often we feel that we are experiencing hell. Fortunately for most, it's transitory, but it gives us a little bit of taste, a little bit of a taste of what it is to suffer. Then, according to Jain cosmography, in the middle realm of our body, we feel our full humanity. We can see this as a reciprocity between stomach and heart, where we have desires, we take in food, we have emotions, we feel beloved, and we feel love for others. And this involvement keeps us in our full humanity and our full involvement with the world, keeps us firmly placed within that middle zone of planet Earth. And then, from time to time, we're able to have glimpses of transcendence. Martin Luther 
as a Protestant, as a reformer of Christianity, said the gateway to know what heaven will be like is to learn to sing. Similarly, the recitation of mantra, this rising up of energy within the throat and echoing that energy through the palate and the sinuses and with all of the operations of the cranium, that ascent that we feel through music, through chant, that gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what it's like to experience one of the 32 heavens. Okay, a singular earth, seven hells, 32 heavens. In meditation, for even an instant, there can be an ascent to the Siddhaloka. And as we traversed these temples, and as we went to a temple called the Ashtapad Temple, we made eight yogic-like circuits in virtual darkness before emerging into a temple complex high above the fertile plain of Hastinapur. And we caught a glimpse for our minutes up there of what it's like to rise above and to gaze on everything happening below. And with that, we felt that bodily connection knowing that in Jainism, the pathway of yoga regards the body to be a temple and regards every temple to be a script for encouraging the practice of nonviolence, of self-improvement, so that one can be elevated to that place of one's best self. Ancient history continues, and modern Jain yoga integrates beautifully both. Pilgrimage to India, it's always a possibility. Shanti, Shanti. The topic of Hatha Yoga brings us into a flurry of speculation and research. And as we reflect upon the principles that govern the teaching of history, we need to always remember that we have multiple sources and that any conclusions drawn by nature will most likely be tentative. In terms of Hatha Yoga, this tradition, as it gradually emerges over time, includes discussion and specifics on asana, on pranayama, on mudra, a bit on mantra, 
and, of course, meditation. For some, hatha yoga is raja yoga, and for others, hatha yoga is quite different from raja yoga. Certainty can be found in any particular text, and there are so many scores and hundreds of resources. So to come up with a coherent narrative about hatha yoga in many ways is impossible. But over these next several minutes, we will try to orient ourselves in the big time of hatha yoga, as well as delve into a few of the specifics. Now, if we look at the Indus Valley Seals, we see that seemingly meditative figure surrounded with animals. Now, some have said that this is an early signature for Pashupati, the lord of animals, who's associated when language, decipherable language, emerges with Rudra and even Shiva. But we don't know for certain. We know that similar images arise in old Europe. We know that even today, that image of the meditating yogi can be found in temples crafted a thousand years ago in India, and that motif continues up into the present. A mystery from antiquity, some may detect a, a family of similarity, but does this mean sitting in yoga asana, padma asana, connects us back some 5,000 years? No one at this point can say for certain. Image, one very important source for creating an historical narrative. Text also provides us with a very important source. And when the army of Alexander entered India some 330 years before the Common Era, they were amazed at people that would stand and hold postures, seated and standing, and they described yogis that would go for hours on one foot, holding a heavy load of lumber above their head and then switch to the other foot. And we also know that yogis described in the Mahabharata would raise one arm into the air and hold that arm for a very, very long period. We know that Draupadi stood on one foot invoking the jackal to cry out. And again, this physicality, the animality connecting these motifs, these memes, if you will, echo from the images, echo from the early literature. It's not until 
really the 11th century with the Yoga Shastra of Hemachandra at a well-documented court in Gujarat, the town of Patan, where Hemachandra served the king, Vatsupala, who had converted from Shaivism to Jainism, we find this wonderful combination of a commitment to writing, writing, and recording. And this king ruled a very long time, perhaps 30 years. And we know a great deal. It's come down to us through history. And we get this little snapshot of what was important at that time. And we know that the yoga being circulated, named yoga, included asana, it included pranayama, it included various forms of meditation. And from this, we begin with this very, very early document to gain confidence in moving forward. I also want to point out the material culture of a thousand years ago. An amazing number of temples were built in South India, in West India, North India, and perhaps the most famous, and many of them still stand today, are the thousand pillared temples. And you gaze down their remarkable expanse and you see pillar after pillar after pillar inscribed, sometimes with animals, sometimes with identifiable gods and goddesses, sometimes with people in meditation pose, and not only in the temples, but even in the city gates going back a thousand years, one can see yoga postures such as Mayur, such as the forward bend, even some acrobatic poses such as chakrasana or the wheel. These are part of the material culture and they don't necessarily correspond to any written records, but in fact, later these poses are enumerated and they are described and they are illustrated, numbered 84,000, numbered 84, said to be 12, said to be four. We have an accounting for these yoga poses that reaches full expression by the 15th century, but not a whole lot earlier than that. Now I've noted already that this early tradition of Hatha Yoga includes, includes asana, pranayama, and meditation. Another text from the 11th century that in fact becomes absorbed and reflected a little bit within Hemachandra's Yoga Shastra is called the Ammanaska. And the Ammanaska specifies that the greatest state of yoga is entering into a moment of dissolution, a moment of laya, a moment where all of the fluctuations, all of the 
perturbed states of mind are brought to a place of rest. So rather than it being manas, which would be the active mind, this is a manas, the no mind state. And this no mind state is later associated with the rise of kundalini. And this correlates to what we find in classical yoga as chitta vritti naroda. Chitta vritti naroda linked as well to these states of samadhi. But I wanted to have this amanas state as a touchstone as we spiral through all of these various techniques and move in the direction of a fuller understanding of hatha yoga as it is practiced today. So within these early texts, there is a technique that is brought forward, variously translated as drishti, or tradakam. And part of the fixing of the mind requires a fixing of the gaze. And this fixing of gaze has a pronounced physicality, has, in a sense, the demeanor or the, the feeling tone of an actual asana. And this drishti or tradakam practice has implicit in its performance an acknowledgement of what the Yoga Sutra refers to as the grahartha, the grasper, the grahana, the process of grasping, and the grahana, that object which is, or rather the grahya, that object which is grasped. And in the holding of the gaze on the object, there's a focus on that process of seeing. There's the presence of the witness or the seer. And there is the object in its fullness upon which the gaze becomes fixed and held. In the Yoga Sutra, this results in a state called samapati, described as becoming like a clear jewel, where that differentiation between self and other disappears. A modern philosopher, David Abram, traveled to Nepal and apprenticed with a Nepalese shaman. For several months, they worked on tradakam, worked on drishti, worked on fixing the gaze. And it became so effective that as Abram gazed upon a crow, he merged his awareness with that awareness of the crow and took flight and gazed down upon with that power described in all of the many texts of yoga that deal with vibhuti and that place of connection, that place of samapati, the together uprising 
resulted in a literal uprising in change of perspective. So the Dhatareya Yoga Shastra, which was written sometime after Hemachandra's Yoga Shastra, but before the 14th century, so either in the 1200s or the 1300s, we see another encapsulation of how to perform what we now call today Hatha Yoga. It includes reference to cleansing techniques. And the cleansing techniques of Hatha Yoga can be quite extreme. They can include swallowing a strip of cotton and taking it down into the stomach and then pulling it out and bringing with it mucus and bile and and what may be deemed to be impurities from deep within the body. It also can include taking water up through the rectum and holding it like an enema and then releasing to make certain from both angles, from both approaches, that to the extent possible, the intestines and the digestive system can be purged. It involves taking water up into the nasal cavities, process known in modern days even now as neti neti. And it also entails the cleansing of the physicality of the body through the performance of asanas. Asanas beyond even Padmasana, but asanas echoing back to Hemachandra, standing on the head. Sim asana, we will return to various others of these. Another way of cleansing is cleansing with the air. In a beautiful symmetry, it says that cleansing can take place with water, even taking water into the body, and then releasing water through a process of systematic vomiting or enema, water washing the external parts of the body, and then cleansing through air and using rapid breath, using extended slow breath to allow that mixture of energies to cleanse what, in the Vasishta Samhita, around the same time, but a little bit later than the Dhatareya Yoga Shastra, refers to as the Nadhis. The Nadhis are the rivers of energy that flow through the body, and they start in terms of being described with the Ida to the left, associated with the moon, and the Pingala to the right, associated with the sun, and the Ida and Pingala spiral upward in the body, surrounding and energizing the Sushumna, which is the central channel. And in these early texts, we get a description of the Kundali, the Kundalini, 
their goddess at the base of the spine twisted three times around, and that through these breathings, that purified body can energize that kundalini through the ida and pingala to ascend through various chakras and ascend to a place of union within the upper reaches. And this links hatha yoga to tantra. And this combined set of techniques, according to the Dhatareya Yoga Shastra, unfolds in four stages. The first stage would be the inception. To begin to experiment, to begin to, to perform, as instructed by the teacher, the fundamentals of asana and the fundamentals of breath control, so that it becomes a daily practice, so that it becomes an action, stage two, action, repeat it again and again and again. This leads to an accumulation, a reserve, a bank, samskaras, samskaras of positivity that counter other samskaras. And as this purification unfolds, the fourth stage after accumulation will be completion. And in this completion phase, fruition comes and that physicality the purification of breath and the application of meditation in all its various forms, self-chosen and directed by the teacher, all of that will result in the glorious phase of completion, wherein Ida in Pingala, Ida in Pingala, Ida in Pingala, generating the energies, the pranas upward, will find a union in that place of amanaska, in that place of quiet, in that place where sun and moon join together, in that place where Shiva and Shakti find through their complementarity that state of union resulting in bliss. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. By the 14th, 15th century, yoga had attained a, a, a certain state of completion and that these aspects of asana were thoroughly described in the literature 
illustrated in manuscript materials and clearly being promulgated at the courts, within communities, and India, as we have to appreciate, during these centuries and carrying on from prior centuries, was never the unified state that we've had since 1947. India, up until and throughout both the Mughal period and the period of British and a little bit of Portuguese and French occupation, during that period, there were as many as 600 different kingdoms, contiguous, bumping up against one another, forming alliances, controversial, but each of those 600 kings benefited from having strength in his position, if it were a Raja, or her position, if it were a Rani or a Maharani, having strength in terms of that strength providing legitimacy for rule. Yoga became a means to solidify that legitimacy and having yogis at court to give advice became a very, very important part of these many, many different kingdoms that were to be found in all of the various regions of India. And the king would turn or the queen would turn to the yogi for advice on breathing, for advice on exercise, and for advice on devotion and meditation. The Brahmin priests would conduct the rituals, but the yogis were there for a very different purpose, quite often the purpose of creating power within the royal body, and then encouraging and advising that king on how to execute power. And this made yoga a topic of great fascination even beyond India. The Arabs who traded frequently up and down the coast of India as well as through the overland Khyber Pass the Arabs created a text called the Haz al-Hayat that summarized the benefits and the specifics about how to do asana and pranayama, and these texts became popular within the Arab world, and the Persians. The Persians created the Bar al-Hayat in the 16th century, and this text beautifully illustrated it's within the Chester Beatty Library and, and in Dublin, in Ireland. And this text is a great resource for understanding the different poses which are illustrated and understanding the different techniques, particularly of pranayama, which are given in great detail. This interest in yoga also went over the Himalayas into Tibet, and there's one text, the Lung Song by De Mig, 
from the 15th century that includes descriptions of asana. And according to one of the many stories of the origins of modern yoga, Krishnamacharya is said to have traveled up into that region of Central Asia to learn some of the Tibetan techniques and bring them back. We know in the Tibetan tradition that there was a great yogi, Talopa, a yogi, Naropa, whose teachings were brought by Milarepa, or rather by the translator Marpa, who became the teacher of Milarepa, and that these early, from almost a thousand years ago, teachings included aspects of Hatha Yoga, including descriptions of chakras. The chakras are the more elevated chakras, as well as techniques, particularly for breathing, as well as for meditation. During this early period, a great figure came forth called Gorakshnath. And Gorakshnath, the teacher Goraksh, was credited with amalgamating yoga science, creating it and bringing it forward. In Bengal, a text was created called the Goraksh Bija, which is sort of the seed of the teachings of Gorakshnath. There is a city in northern India near the Nepal border called Gorakhpur, and this includes a magnificent temple in honor of this yogi, and right at the heart of the temple area of Kathmandu, there is a similar temple honoring Goraksh, Gorakshnath, the great yoga teacher. During this medieval period, there were Kanpat yogis who followed these yoga teachings and were com completely identifiable by these very large earrings that were uh, made of metal and caused an elongation of their ears. And these yogis, the Kanpat yogis, would circulate through northern India over into Nepal and again, at the service of the royal court, would give people of royal family one-on-one -on -one instruction on pranayama, on diet, on asana, on meditation, and bring about in individuals the power to capture what Patanjali had described much earlier is the wonderful powers of beauty, the wonderful powers of strength, the wonderful powers of language acquisition, vital within India, which remains to this day a polyglot nation. Most Indians, just by virtue of living in India, will pick up over the course of their lifetime five or seven languages. And this is a skill that is enhanced through the concentration powers of yoga, the skill of clairvoyance, as well as the skill of long, and the gift of long life. Now all of these tapa yogis practiced in households, practice in court, involve movement, 
involve the external movement of the limbs, including Shirasana, standing on the head, including Sarvangasana, standing on the shoulders, including Dhanurasana, pulling backward with the arms and upward with the legs, forming that arrow of directionality toward great focus, focus toward the ultimate state of awareness. Bending forward, standing still, all of these are ways of outward purification and movement of the limbs. The body is tied together with fascia, and modern research has shown that that fascia holds deep memory. We have skeleton, we have tendon, we have muscle, and wrapped around and connecting it all, we find the fascia, which is malleable, and even more than the tendons and the muscles, it's the fascia that receives the benefit of cleansing. It's the fascia, the connective tissue, that receives that welcome stretch, that release of the knotting up that we feel, particularly under times of stress. And it's that elongation of the fascia that allows the easy flow of energy within the body. These early texts also give great attention to the teeth. And the teeth are a wonderful gift. They are replaced once around the age of seven. For those who have a jaw that has been accustomed to chewing of dense food, modern people, they don't really have much use for wisdom teeth. But in the old days, when people's um, diet required more energization brought, the, the wisdom teeth would be exactly that, signaling entry into full adulthood. And many yogic texts give detailed descriptions about how to cleanse the teeth, about which sticks and twigs to find in order to make sure that the gums remain healthy. That cleansing of, through water, of the elementary system, okay, very, very important. And this attention to sexuality, okay, yoga, tantra, two avenues. One school of thought says that to be an effective and powerful in meditative yogi, one must practice celibacy. For sannyasis, for the monks and the nuns, they actually have a technique whereby the heel is inserted into the perineum so that the flow of blood becomes interrupted and that state of sexual arousal begins literally to wither away. But then there are others, the king, the queen, the prince, the householder, for whom sexuality 
becomes the gateway to greatest pleasure. And in these Hatha Yoga texts, the act of sexual intercourse becomes the metaphor for Mahasukha, becomes the metaphor for joining Purusha and Prakriti, becomes the, not only the metaphor, but the description of a very high state of ananda, of bliss. And there's also other variations. There's a technique that we find in some of these Hatha Yoga texts called Vajroli, where once the semen is released, it becomes reabsorbed back into the body through a technique that requires a great deal of practice, a technique beyond my ken, certainly. But there is a willingness to acknowledge that this remarkable energy, this remarkable sexual energy that is found in the lower reaches of the body holds something that according to the Hatha Yoga texts can be talked about in terms of bindu and bija. Bindu, drop, bija, seed. And that this energy can be elevated away from those lower energy centers through the crossing of Ida and Pingala into the higher domain of chakras. Some of the yoga texts and tantra texts talk about 16 chakras, 12 chakras, 9 chakras, 8 chakras, so many different ways to think about the chakras. But in the 19th century and early 20th century, a man called Sir John Woodruff, alias Arthur Avalon, probed all of these Hatha Yoga and Tantra texts, went to the Tibetan sources as well, and gave us, for the modern world, a way of thinking about this long scientific experiment as follows, that at the base of the spine, correlating to the region of the anus, there is an energy center called Muladhara. Some of the yoga texts say that circling around, around the perineum, around the anus, one can find the sleeping kundalini. And then moving from the back of the base to the front of the, of the base of the spine, we see svadhisthana, which literally means that which will stand up on its own. In the male, it's expressed through the linga. Through the female, it's expressed through the term yoni. And for many people, that relationship between muladhara and svadhisthana defines a life of normalcy. That evacuation is good, you're okay, you have a, a fine, wonderful, healthy sex life, that's okay, all of your needs are met. But according to this system of energetic ascent, there resides in the region of the solar plexus 
a third, a higher state of energy, which according to some is called the Manipura, which means the city of jewels. And for others, it's called the Napi, which is cognate with the English word navel. And it refers to all of that energy around the stomach, the liver, the small intestine, the large intestine, the kidneys, all of those functionings of digestion preliminary to elimination. And again, to be able to bring relaxation to that zone, that zone that accepts so much tension and can result in various forms of ulcerative colitis and ulcers themselves, that through the pranayam that massages that whole area, the Nabi and Manipura can become a seat for abiding joy. To be visualized as a lotus, to be linked in various traditions with various mantras, and to become a center of solace and power. And then rising above, and again, through the instrument of breath, rising above in the Hatha Yoga text, the crossover point between Ida and Pingala found within the heart. And in the heart, referred to as Anahata, the unstruck place of beautiful music, referred to as Hridaya, again, showing the antiquity with these Indo-European words that reach back thousands of years before our common era. Hrid, heart, khur, okay, the heart, the Hridaya, this is the place of emotion. This is the place, according to the Tibetans, where our true mind resides. This is the place where we feel that sense of bhakti. We feel that sense of love. And in Hatha Yoga, we find many ways to settle back down. Proto-Hatha Yoga, found in the, in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, starts the chakra system in the belly, has it rise up to the throat, the Vishuddha chakra, and from the Vishuddha chakra to go to what is later called the Ajnya Chakra, the Sahasraha Chakra, that place of light within the head, that place where we connect to the ascended souls dwelling in the Siddha Loka, that place of perfection. But for Patanjali, and for the Tibetans in particular, all of that energy, all of that bindu and bija must descend from the cranium through the throat. And those, ga- those drops of awareness, those drops of tender consciousness must be gathered into the heart in order for that best place of compassion to become the place through which one engages the manifest realm. So we have an inner, we have an outer, we have the relationship between the two, and we have a sense that with 
The performance of Hatha Yoga, we come both to a place of stability and quiet and to a place of great exaltation and bliss and that we need to let that settle in the heart and then through patience, through calm, through loving words to re-engage and elevate the world itself. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. The Hatha Yoga texts, most accessible, most frequently translated, are the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the Garanda Samhita, and the Shiva Samhita. And there are so many others. In the early 16th century, a compiler by the name of Shivananda made a compendium of over 90 Hatha Yoga resources, the Yoga Chintamani, the jewel of all of the ideas on yoga. And from these, we can find enduring themes from that medieval period, the medieval period where the Hindu kings needed and wanted yoga, the Mughal emperors needed and wanted yoga, when the villagers would practice and incorporate these aspects of yoga into their daily rhythm. And the other thing about yoga that I find very important to keep in mind is that the Kanpat yogis were very, very, I, I hate to use the word low caste, but they were not Brahmins, they were not Kshatriyas, they were not merchants. They were working class people. There is a horizontality to the human body that places yoga on a level playing field among all populations. So I, I want to underscore that yoga is not the exclusive property of elites, but yoga can be found at all of the various strata of society. Now, asana, Pranayama, Dharna, Dhyana, Samadhi, Samyama are the critical pieces lifted up and described in this literature. The Garanda Samhita, in particular, focuses on Dharana and it lays out the principles and practices of Pancha Mahabhuta Dharana, wherein one sustains attention in turn on earth, water, fire, air, and space. The Hatha Yoga Pradipika 
without giving that specificity, nonetheless talks about the great blessings that come with a life of meditation, a life that moves into samadhi. And all of these texts talk about the bandhas. Little bit interchangeable here, bandha and mudra. Okay, mudra is simultaneously a gesture, but a, a mudra also puts one's physicality into a place of binding, okay, bandha, to bind. Again, a cousin word, a very, very old word going back to the origins of that Indo-European language continuum. And this word bandha finds expression in three primary ways of practice. My own training in Hatha Yoga goes back to when I was about 15, 16 years old. And I began a dozen years of direct instruction under a woman trained in Hatha Yoga in India in the 1940s and 50s. Her name was Grani Anjali. And what she advised, drawing from her own experience and confirmed by the Hatha Yoga manuals, is every day to perform the Tribanda, the three locks, before you do really much of anything else. And these three locks are Mulaband, where you draw up according to the way of our instruction, you draw up on the pelvic floor as you inhale. The anal muscles, the muscles of the perineum, that whole floor upon which the body resides. You draw up that pelvic floor while inhaling, and then inhaling fully, diaphragmatically letting the diaphragm be pushed downward and outward by the lower lobes of the lungs, letting the rib cage expand out to the side, allowing the breath to fully energize the region of the heart, and then taking that extra work of the very upper lobes of the lungs, up into the shoulders even, and when that breath is fully present, within all aspects, downward, sideward, and upward, to enter what is called Jalandharabhand. And hold that inhale breath and bring the chin down toward the chest for the hold of the inhale. And allow that prana, allow that energy to circulate and then slowly releasing that lower mulaband and releasing the jalandharabhand to exhale, exhale, exhale. And then when fully exhaled, to bring the stomach, the abdominal 
muscles, and even those organs, and tuck them up as if under the ribcage, and hold that exhale for a long period of time, and then release the musculature, and then reintroduce breath, reintroduce the mula band, reintroduce the jalandhara band, hold, and then slowly release, and then apply the final udhyana. And then repeat for 10 times. Now, various yogis teach different breaths. And when I've studied in the Shivananda tradition, some variations. When I've studied with Srivatsa Ramaswamy, some other variations. There are so many ways to perform pranayama. Another foundational pranayama, again, for the purification of the body-mind-spirit continuum through air, anuloma-viloma, inhaling left, holding, exhaling right, holding, inhaling right, holding, exhaling left, holding, and some yogis will instruct applying the bandhas during the anuloma-viloma process. It's another technique. All of these have been practiced explicitly for hundreds and hundreds of years, as we know from the texts. And for each of the pranayam practices, and for each of the various asana practices, we find in the classical literature different benefits that are listed. And now, starting almost 100 years ago at Dr. Yogendra's Academy, the Yoga Institute in Bombay, and at Kuvalyananda Kaivalyadam, Kuvalyananda, the great science researcher of yoga from some 90 years ago, and his research institute at Lonavala, near Pune. And more recently, going back about 30, 40 years ago, I first visited there shortly after they opened at Vivekananda Kendra's S. Vyas Yoga Research Station, and even more recently with the Patanjali Center opened by Yogi Ramdev in the north of India, all of this is coming under close scrutiny, not only in some ways confirming the early observations that were made by the composers of these texts so many years ago, but also bringing it into the realm of modern science. Very fascinating how Hatha Yoga has captured the imagination of so many millions throughout the world now. And how can we encourage people to develop an informed practice? 
We know that yogis were at court. We know that in Mysore, Krishnamacharya was brought by the Maharaja of Mysore to provide direct instruction. And we know that Krishnamacharya himself was an innovator. And he had studied all manner of different forms of yoga. He had visited that research institute established by Kuvalyananda. It's said that he went up to Tibet, that he traveled and he gathered nectar from so many different teachers. And what we know from all of the varieties of text that there's not a single yoga, there's not one system that will work for everyone. We know, however, the foundation. The foundation is found in a recognition that the body is like a temple, that the body holds within it this life force referred to by some as jiva, this life-living, breathing continuum referred to by some as atman. We know that the body is the home wherein dwells the person, the purusha, the drashter, the witness. And we know that through purification by water, internal and external, we know that by purification through air, inviting in the prana is the gift of life, savoring that prana, valuing and honoring that prana, that these energies, these nadis, these flows can be purified. The rivers in the body, the rivers of energy can be brought to a place of calmness, can be brought to a place of alacrity and clear attention, can be brought to a place of focus and to a place of strength and power. Not everyone will necessarily be moved to bridge the metaphors of our physiology through yoga. But in my experience, both in practicing hatha yoga daily for more than 45 years, and by looking at the metaphors of world literature and engaging with so many students over the years, people do know what it's like to feel the complete surrender of self through an experience of love. People do know what it feels like when emotions well up like a lump in the throat, causing sobbing and release. People know the catharsis of a good crying session and feel that energy of which we speak. And many people, not all, have had that sensation of a throbbing, of a central frontal lobe experience 
wherein what the yogis called the third eye or the ajna chakra feels energized. And many people have either in dream or through states, sometimes spontaneous, sometimes invited through extended meditation, of feeling connected with something greater than ourselves. And that energetic work made available through Hatha Yoga speaks to people whether they know these theories or not. The energetic physiology, this mapping of the larger world and the small world of the human body, this notion that somehow we can take that higher energy and manifest it through the work of our hands, through kind words heartfully uttered through our speech, through the movement that we make with our legs and our feet, taking us to those places of edification, through the quieting of the body, whereby we're able to come to a place of dignity. All of that can be found, described in detail in these beautiful texts of Hatha Yoga. And in the Garanda Samhita, which is one of my favorites, there's a description of meditation, newly rendered by Mallinson and by Singleton, that I'd like to share. There are said to be three types of meditation, gross, luminous, and subtle. Gross is of an image, meditating upon perhaps a statue, and luminous is of light, this pure presence within space. Subtle meditation is of the point, the bindu. It is Brahman, and Kundalini is the ultimate deity. Kundalini at the base of the spine rising up, Brahman coming from the heavens and entering the mood through meditation. The yogi should visualize a sublime ocean of nectar in the heart with an island of jewels in its middle whose sand is made of gemstones. In every direction there are kundaba trees, beautiful flowering trees with fragrance of jasmine, with abundant flowers, with the scent of malati, malika, jati, kesara, kampaka, parijata, stalapadma flowers, like flowers of jasmine. In the middle, the yogi should imagine an enchanting, wish-fulfilling tree whose four branches are the four Vedas. And this tree permanently bears flowers and fruits. Bees buzz and call there. That yogi should steady the body and visualize a great jeweled pavilion. In the middle, visualize a delightful throne 
on which is found the Ishtadevatars, which is found that person to whom one aspires. Meditate on that chosen deity's form and visualize a beautiful lotus vibrating with the syllables ha, sa, ksha, ma, la, wa, ra, yam, ha, sa, ka, frem. Visualize that those syllables transform one's sense of body and that that guru, that teacher, that chosen personage after which you to aspire, that you aspire to model yourself, that that person is garlanded with white flowers and then bring it all inside. Let the kundalini at the base vibrate forward, let that energy descend through the syllable Aum into the place of the heart. Visualize oneself surrounded by fire and then perform Shambhavi Mudra. Shambhavi Mudra, a mudra whereby you take that place of greatness, a place that you have visualized outwardly and allow yourself, your body, your breath, your hands clasped, perhaps together in Anjali Mudra, allow yourself with humility to imagine that state of Siddha, that state of perfection, and that state of perfect peace. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Thank you for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the history of yoga. Look for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills.